You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, Guthrie. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's my pleasure. I'm very glad to have you on. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Guthrie Graves Fitzsimmons. Very august sounding name. The, the, uh, yeah, I'm very, very impressed. Um, and you are the author of a book we're going to talk about called Just Faith. And I guess I'm pronouncing just correctly. There may be a little bit of a play on words there. And, and, uh, and I, uh, you know, uh, just as in reference to justice, um, as well as, well, we'll get into that maybe, whether there is or is not a double entendre in this title. But the subtitle is Reclaiming Progressive Christianity. I can show people what it looks like on the audio book. That's what I've been listening to. Do you actually have a copy near that you can hold up or not? Um, I uh, have copies there behind me. Well, over my you shoulder. know what it is? Yeah. It's it's that damn Christian humility that kept you from being so, self-promotional enough to have a copy handy, Guthrie. But it's okay. Uh People, uh, I think I gave people the 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 book looks just like remarkably like the audio book. I think very nice looking book jacket. You have to let me know what the audio book's like. I haven't listened to it. (laughs) It's good. Uh, It's a narrator who sounds familiar. I think I've heard other books by uh, done by him. Um, But but yeah, it's 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 a good rendering. Um, And he does us the service of rendering all quotes in a slightly different voice. Which on audio can matter because sometimes, you know, they open up those quotation marks before they tell you this is a quote, right? They attribute it at the end and you have no mm-hmm. way of knowing they've suddenly shifted into quote mode if they don't change the voice. With this you're narrative, like, well, Guthrie or Dr. King, I have no idea. Exactly. They sound, they're so, <laughs> exactly. Was that Martin Luther King or, or Guthrie Graves Fitzsimmons? <laughs> I always get them mixed up. Um, both from the South. You're from Houston. I and am. you're and you're currently in Louisville, as we say. In Great Louisville. pronunciation. Thank you, thank you. Um, and you are the Faith and Progressive. Oh wait, you are a fellow in the Faith and Progressive Policy Initiative with the Center for American Progress. Okay. Uh, you hold a Master of Divinity from Union Theological Seminary, where you were the William Sloan Coffin Scholar in Christian Social Ethics. And I might say by way of full disclosure that you were a student of mine when I, as a visiting scholar of science and religion at Union Theological Seminary, taught a course there. Proud to say I passed that course, got those credits, contributed to the degree. You did pass, and it wasn't a close call, I have to say. (laughs) In fact, I would say I noted that you were a very good writer at the time, but if anything, your writing has improved. This is I'm very impressed with with the book. I'm very proud. Thank you. uh, To the extent that I had anything at all to do with it, which I'm sure is very limited. Um, you, uh, so... I will say on that. Oh. Yeah, no, go ahead. I, go I ahead. I say, you know, reading the evolution of God, you did have a huge impact on my life. You know, that was what kind of pushed me to go partly towards seminary. And then uh, you're kind of merciless with my writing a little bit in that course, kind of giving me a lot was of Was I feedback. merciless? Was I? A little... I think so. that's how I remember it. It's a little jarring for your favorite, one of your favorite authors to really tear into your writing. I take, uh, I, take but- the dr- I take the drill sergeant approach to teaching. I know that, that like, you know, millennials sometimes aren't comfortable with that. Are you technically it's, a millennial or? I am a millennial and it is tough for me, but I'm, I'm trying to do better. Uh, well, I don't, I don't remember being that critical. I remember one time, once I think you brought a, a kind of a piece, an op-ed type piece you'd written yeah. up for, uh, as an extracurricular matter for my uh, feedback. I'm sure it would have been as ruthless as I thought was helpful in that, in that. Moment. You were very helpful. So, uh, um, thank you. So final thing in your author's bio is that you live in, uh, that you live in Louisville with your husband, the Reverend John Russell Stanger. Is that all pronounced correctly? Um, that is. And, um, and that's a little bit relevant to the story we have to tell. I mean, the fact that, that you're gay is a little relevant to the story that you have to tell in the book about, um, how you, uh, came to be a fierce champion of progressive Christianity. Before we get into your story, um, why don't you say a little bit about what you see as the main purpose of the book? 
Yeah, I've been working for close to a decade in progressive Christianity, working with people of other faiths and in the larger progressive movement. And I've just discovered this kind of defensive posture from a lot of progressive Christians who want to say they're not like the fundamentalists. They're, you know, not conservative. I'm a Christian, but not that kind. And so I wrote the book as a love letter to encourage fellow progressive Christians that actually there's amazing progressive Christian churches in every major city in most small towns in this country. And so we need to be a little less defensive and a little more bold in our advocacy more explicitly. So I just wanted to, yeah, it was came out of years of experience and wanting to just encourage people. Okay, so it sounds like it is. And I got the impression that is mainly directed at Christians. At the same time, I think you would like to dispel some misconceptions that are out there, you know, that are floating around in the minds of a broader audience, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you actually hear that from non-Christians all the time that say, I appreciate learning there are progressive Christians. It's so surprising to me. And I heard this, you know, when I was in seminary in New York City, but also growing up in Houston, now in Louisville, where people are surprised that there are LGBTQ affirming, you know, people out marching for Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, that's been a big subject here in Louisville with the police murder, Breonna Taylor. People are actually surprised, Christians and non-Christians alike, that progressive Christians exist in large numbers. And so I hear from non-Christians that they're pleased to hear this. And so I think that's a kind of secondary audience for the book. Okay. So now let's do, before we flesh that out, back up and talk about your own, your own story. You're, you're brought up Christian, though not in the exact denomination that you identify with now, right? That's right. Yeah. I was brought up in a liberal Methodist church. My parents, uh, both union organizers, they retired earlier this year. And so I was brought up on the picket line, kind of, uh, one of the earliest photos I have of me is nailing in an Ann Richards for governor yard sign. And, you know, my parents like holding me in the baby carrier at protests. And so I was raised in a very, you know, super progressive activist household and in church. And those just seem naturally like two different ways of expressing the same concept. And so I, I'm very grateful to have um, and my Congresswoman, Sheila Jackson Lee, you know, talked about her faith all the time. It was a very natural part of, uh, you know, my upbringing that church and activism were not, you know, two separate concepts. And then I had the rude awakening as a teenager when I discovered kind of that there, that wasn't the reigning kind of cultural norm in our country. And that's when I had that, that disconnect with it, which then made me want to do something about it and kind of do that as a career. And what, what was the stance of your denomination at that that you were brought up in toward gay rights? So the United Methodist Church is an interesting um, uh, stance on LGBTQ rights. It uh, so my church was pretty accepting. Our pastor, when I was in high school, and sort of uh, I came out my first year of college, but you know, in high school, I was really kind of like um, wrestling with being gay, and my pastor was the Grand Marshal of Pride Parade in Houston. So I got a very affirming kind of stance from my own pastor, which is often the person that most influences, you know, your faith development. It wasn't just like a not fire and brimstone message from the pulpit. It was actually a a very positive um, message. She had a gay son uh, and had kind of um, come to a very affirming stance. And then in college, I like prayed with my Methodist chaplain as I came out. Uh, a very supportive community and then was involved in a very um, super activist LGBTQ affirming church called Foundry United Methodist Church in Washington, D.C., which is um, just a few blocks from the White House and very active in politics. And so I had a, a you know, very um, welcoming, affirming uh, experience at my own church, but the United Methodist Church has a policy of discrimination where they say uh, homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching and the efforts to change that, which have been happening in every denomination have not yet. <laughs> we haven't gotten to that point yet in the Methodist church and it's close. I actually went to the conference in 2016 in Portland uh, where they had like the vote again and it failed <laughs> or the, how many, I think they voted on it every four years since 1972 to change the policy 
and it keeps failing. Um, and I just got kind of done with it um, at that point. And I wanted to be in a church that would like officiate my wedding. And so when we moved to my then boyfriend, now husband, when we moved to Louisville, it was kind of this opportunity. I saw, you know, I, we hadn't proposed to each other yet, but I kind of saw the writing on the wall and knew we were headed that direction. And so it was an opportunity to break um, with the the Methodist denomination. And uh, I joined a Baptist church. And then my husband's a Presbyterian pastor. So we just have, we're just broadly Protestant, liberal Protestants. Okay. Why don't we talk a, a little bit about the tradition of liberal Protestantism? I don't think everyone listening to this or watching it will be familiar with the, the term mainline Christianity. Many will, but, uh, but you talk, you do, in the book, you do a little kind of quick history of liberal Christianity in America, of the kind of rise and then to some extent decline of mainline Christianity. Can you, can you just say a little bit about that? Yeah. And every denomination, there is a kind of, there was a come to Jesus moment at the earliest, at the early parts of the 20th century where, um, you know, fundamentalism rose up within the different denominations. And at the same time, the denominations were kind of embracing modern science and, um, you know, liberal thought overall kind of expanding, um, kind of, uh, the denominations were evolving and kind of embracing modern thought while still holding on, uh, to their, uh, religious convictions. And then fundamentalists were upset about that. So it was, there was this big modernist fundamentalist controversy in the early 20th century that then um, sort of denominations split and people have basically been battling in the book. I talk about how basically we're still fighting that battle a hundred years later um, where you have liberal. Now we kind of call it progressive Christianity on one side and then uh, fundamentalism got a bad rap and they rebranded it evangelicalism and took this kind of concept that has a long history in, in Christian uh, theology about being evangelical, spreading the good news, and kind of made that a focal point um, where you had to agree to certain strict uh, biblical interpretation, like being a biblical literalist uh, on one side that was fundamentalist and then evangelical. And so there was this split that's basically been happening, and it's still happening um, where uh, Protestants kind of divided into two camps, and uh, we're st- we're like facing that problem still today. You know, on the biblical literalism thing, originally that was definitionally part of fundamentalism. Fundamentalism, yeah. as you note, the term comes from a series of kind of pamphlets or something called the Fundamentals, uh, written put out by uh, somebody associated with Princeton Theological Seminary, I think, um, yeah. and. Uh, at that point, the, the, everything in the Bible being literally true was part of the deal. Now, I don't think everyone who calls himself evangelical now, even conservative evangelical now, right, would, would subscribe to that. I mean, that was kind of the stance I was brought up with. I was brought up as a Southern Baptist. But my sense is, uh, that even, the term evangelical covers maybe a slightly a broader theological spectrum and kind of doctrinal spectrum than we appreciate. Does that make sense? Yeah. And there's no good, there's no one will agree on a definition of evangelicalism, right. but I think it's largely a kind of rebranded fundamentalism where it's, and, and now, you know, there's different inerrant, the Bible's inerrant without error. Um, and but there is a strong case for literal. Is that taken, today. is that is that sometimes meant to not mean literally true, but just uh, true in some sense or another, al- either allegorically true or literally true? Is that what inerrant or uh, means or what? I think you know people are going to have different definitions of each okay. of these. Um, and then there's the you know people draw the line about. Um, you know, the, uh, is the Bible inspired, like the actual, did God, God's self write the actual words or was it, you know, which then means no kind of human and, you know, no human that actually wrote it down. You know, it's total and the Bible is the total inspired word of God. And so each denomination kind of has had different dividing lines, 
But what fundamentalists have always done is draw these kind of strict boundaries around right belief and then said, you know, like the liberals are on the other side of that. Um, you know, we're not like those other Christians and they're not, they don't take the Bible seriously. Mm-hmm. So as you note, kind of mid 20th century, um, the liberal Christianity, sometimes called mainline Christianity, you know, the mainline denominations that were liberal, certainly like Episcopalian and, I mean, Baptist is interesting because actually there are different, there's different things, right? Southern Baptist has been, con- uh, conservative fundamentalist, uh, but other, but you're now a Baptist, right? And, and that's, would, is different. Um, but. Yeah, and Baptists have their own history and, uh, my church here in Louisville's aligned with the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship and the Alliance of Baptists, kind of two newer denominations that both split off from the Southern Baptist Convention. But then you also have American Baptists and you have Baptists that kind of, um, you know, uh, pre that were pre Southern Baptist split. Mm-hmm. So in each denomination, the kind of formulation and split has been different, but generally, yeah, you have, and the mainline, uh, the kind of liberals won largely mid century. Mm-hmm. And so you had, uh, the mainline tradition, uh, the national council of churches, that represented that. And then you had these breakaway fundamentalists who then rebranded as evangelical and started the national association of evangelicals and sort of carved out this whole culture of evangelicalism that was, you know, critical of liberal Christianity, mainline Protestantism. Uh And conservatives, religious conservatives sometimes emphasize that you know, attendance numbers have been dropping for mainline churches, and that that you don't deny. I mean, you you think there's a more, more robust progressive Christianity than many people realize, but you don't deny that there is has been something of a crisis for mainline churches in some sense. Certainly not the number. You know, there's been a decline in all kind yeah. of attendance. There's been a decline in Southern Baptist Convention has lost a million members in the past ten years. Uh, Catholicism has seen declining. Attendance. So yeah, there's a decline overall, but the, the certainly the, um, the decline in mainline congregations has been weaponized by evangelicals to then discredit us and kind of write us off. But there was, right, a, a shift in the, in relative kind of, uh, participation in mainline and evangelical churches like what during the, I would guess like, during the 80s, 90s, there, there was, mm-hmm. if you just added up the numbers, you'd say, okay, the ratio of evangelicals to, uh, mainline Christians was, was growing during some period of decades. Is that fair to say? Definitely. And I think over the declines have been more recent, um, the negative declines, uh, in evangelicalism than mainline. I think in the most recent year, of course, this could just be statistical noise right now. There was actually an uptick in mainline uh, attendance um, and membership uh, like in the past year. And there's been some articles about how mainliners in the Trump years have actually gone back, but you're, there's no denying that there's been a decline overall. And I actually agree with a lot of conservatives who say now, as um, we become a more diverse country and Christianity is less like the only religion, um, you know, a lot of nominal people who maybe didn't, we're just going out of cultural kind of uh, norms don't go as much anymore. So I think people that are actively going to church now really are like uh, actively involved and care about it. Okay. Now um, talk a little about what you see as the underappreciated vibrance of, uh, of progressive Christianity. There's some, a poll that you, I think you actually helped, shape the 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 poll the poll itself maybe that you were involved in the polling um and you were you report some numbers in the book right yeah i worked with the public religion research institute they had already fielded the survey but i was trying to get at the idea that there are like the progressive christians exist and so i asked them to run a test of pro choice pro lgbtq pro immigration christians in the United States. And the numbers came back uh, roughly 35 million. And that's not a uh, million American adults fit that kind of three-pronged test using this one poll. 
And of course, it's only one poll. And I don't mean to say that's like a litmus test of what a progressive is. But I I wanted to show that you often sometimes you hear about progressive Christians and there's this kind of undercurrent of maybe they're progressive on a couple things like uh, racial justice, justice, but they actually hate LGBTQ people and and are want to criminalize abortion. And so my goal was to show there are millions and millions and millions, and I was really surprised to see the, the numbers that large that are consistently progressive. And so if you think of this population of people who um, support reproductive rights, support LGBTQ rights, and are Christians, you know, they probably also care about climate change and racial justice and and other issues as well. Okay. And so that was my, my, uh, that was actually one of the first things I did when I set out to write the book was I had this poll and I just kept thinking more and more about it. And the, it started out as an op-ed and then just kept getting longer and it turned into the book. Okay. And I guess with immigration, you, you use the term pro-immigration, but the, the question, I guess, more specifically operationalize that and ask about some specific policies or something. Right. Yeah. Um, so 35 million on all three issues. Right. Okay. So yeah, that's, um, I mean, you're right. That's not the extent of what we mean by progressivism. Uh, on the other hand, that's three for three. And those are three big issues. And, um, I, I would say kind of immigration is maybe of more recent saliency in the kind of evangelical liberal kind of tension slash Discourse, but the, but the other two have for some time been been fundamental. I, I, and I mean, would you almost say that that the issues of, of female of, of choice on abortion and LGBTQ stop me when I'm uh, when I've said all the right letters? I think I've said them right. Is that close? Should I say everyone? More? It's like <laughs> fundamentalism. You know, everyone has a different definition. People use different letters. Okay, you, <laughs> you know what I mean. The, the issue of, of female choice and and uh, LGBTQ rights. Um, wh- how large a role would you would you say those played in really giving shape to kind of conservative evangelicism? I, I mean, you know, in terms of motivating people to follow the Jerry Falwells or the you know or, or the whoever's. Well. Uh... <laughs> Kind of human sexuality has led to Jerry Falwell Jr.'s downfall. Definitely. <laughs> now, 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 let's don't be mean. <laughs> um, nothing against, you know, threesomes, but uh, it's the hypocrisy, you know, of him watching. I thought that, yeah, we don't need to get into that. But uh, <laughs> I don't know, it's, hey, it's good TV. Talk about it all you want. You know, I, I uh, he was just watching. I mean. It was like none of the reporters like really pro- like probed that, you know, just standing well, in the he- you know, or just it's, watching, like, it's um, interesting because, um, Jimmy Swaggart, uh, you know, the other big sex scandal that comes to mind involving a, a big time evangelical leader. I don't know if you remember his thing, but his thing was that he would hire prostitutes to undress in front of him while I gather he pleasured himself. But he did, he also, um, did not did not have the physical contact, I think. It it, it didn't involve physical contact. So uh, make of that what you will, folks. The, part of the, the real concern in that story is just the kind of um, totally dysfunctional kind of human sexual ethics, which gets in, which has real public policy concerns when people advocate for abstinence-only education in school and just like uh, the obsession with human sexuality is um, has just become this huge rallying point for evangelicalism. And I don't think it's what really drove it at the beginning. There's been a lot of good reporting about how what really gave rise to the modern religious right is um, fighting desegregation. Hmm. But they definitely caught on with this kind of human sexual after uh, Roe v. Wade was decided and really um, like uh, made it a focal point. And it does drive so much of their their advocacy and just you, you they send out these vote. I was just looking at a voting guide today um, from a conservative Christian group that it's like all, you know, about human sexuality. <laughs> and that's like the only issues uh, that that matter to them. Uh, and, the, and this and this was about the 2020 election 
are, uh, and they're obviously very closely related, kind of <laughs> controlling who has sex with who and, mm-hmm. um, you know, the government's role in that. Okay. So, um, so, so at any rate, those have become very prominent, I guess, along with immigration. I mean, does it, does it turn, is there good data on how, uh, united evangelicals are in supporting highly restrictive immigration policies? Is that, is that kind of a thing? I think there, there are certainly people that, um, are, and I did a lot of work in this personally, working with some more moderate, and progressive evangelicals to do uh, immigration reform advocacy um, around people that like recognize the kind of uh, Jesus says, you know, I was a stranger and you welcome me. And there's a lot of like pro things you can read in the Bible as pro immigrant. And so there are some people there, but I think I picked immigration because it's become such a focal point of Trumpism as like the driving factor of, um, you know, being supported white, supporting white identity politics and, and being anti-immigrant as a way of like, <laughs> in uh, not being explicitly racist, but just being anti-immigrant as kind of um, riling up, like in this talk about uh, suburbs, uh, you know, like this thinly veiled racism um, and being anti-immigrant and like all the talk about shithole countries and wanting more immigrants from Scandinavia you know, it's all, it really goes back to the driving force of what built the religious right, which is um, like white identity politics. So um, you mentioned, you just alluded to scripture that supports your, uh, a political stance of yours. I mean, as you know, one of the my points of emphasis in the evolution of God was that uh, people of all religions seem remarkably good at focusing on the parts of scripture that sustain their uh, there, you know, other ideas of theirs, political dispositions, and so on, and, and and further that those dispositions can be shaped by facts on the ground in in a lot of ways. Uh, but um, is it your you in the book you cite, you know, for various uh policy positions you favor, you cite scripture that sounds compelling certainly uh the idea of concern for the downtrodden um you know there's a number of things you can point to do you i'm not sure do you mention one of my favorites that a rich man has the same chances of, of going to heaven that a camel has of passing through the eye of a needle <laughs> I, I was listening i was listening and not reading so i could have missed it do you cite that one you know i can't remember i'm, I'm not I, sure you I, do i'm not sure you do i don't know if it made it into the book or not there you was so many for- editing <laughs> But you do, you do cite the, you know, I was hungry, you gave me food and so on. And, and there's, there's plenty of that. Um, I assume that, uh, conservative evangelicals do the same thing to the extent that they can, right? And they, and I'm wondering how you think, I mean, is it your view that actually there is a lot to choose from? Um, and, you know, you can probably find what you want somewhere. Of course, we have to specify, are we talking about just the New Testament? Um, or are we? Because I assume the things that, that, um, conservatives would quote with respect to gay rights would, would come out of the Old Testament. Is that right? No, they draw on things from Paul. They do. What did Paul yeah. say? Um, you know, there's several clobber verses, uh, What's where Paul's, uh, <laughs> They don't come back to me right now. <laughs> Paul was not as progressive as you would have liked in all respects. Paul uh, was, you know, talked about like fleshly desires. And there are things that well, are mis- yeah. that I think people misread. Um, you know, there was no and there have been a lot of people that are like biblical scholars that look at the issues of LGBTQ rights. And there was really no conception of like a loving, um, you know, uh, same sex relationship. Um, well, with Paul, Paul there was writing about with Paul, there was barely acceptance of sex, right? I mean, didn't he say? I mean, wasn't the idea that look? Of course, back then he thought that the the second coming was imminent, right? You, right. you you wouldn't have long to wait. You wouldn't have to deprive yourself for long before the second coming came. In the meanwhile, his ideal was you shouldn't have sex. And didn't he say, look, if you have to have sex, well, then get married at least, but. It's better if you don't have sex. Am I misremembering that? No, that's correct. 
Um, um, and yeah, there was, uh, and there was also just a general sense of like, not, uh, like, yeah, the, the, the sex, the earthly things didn't matter, uh, because, you know, it was all going to be over soon. Yeah. Okay. So is your view that, uh, what is your view on, on how much, um, I mean, I mean, do you think that, that just a plain reading of the Bible makes it clear that you're right on all these issues and they're wrong? Or do you think that, you know, some of these issues were just not anticipated and are not even, there's no kind of uh, all that much relevant scripture, period? Or like, what, what is your, does, does this make sense? I mean, how, it does. How, I think how, the one yeah. of the best lectures I heard in seminary, which wasn't in your class. Uh, that hurts. That hurts. But go I'll ahead. I exempt your class um, and say one of the best lectures I heard was by Phyllis Tribble, who was one of my Bible professors, a pioneering feminist uh, Bible scholar. And she talked about the kind of arc of scripture being liberative and um, like God's love and mercy and justice and that there is a counter narrative in scripture of, and she had a lot of things to cite, you know, and she talked about how so many feminist uh, biblical scholars have wrestled with the text that has been used to hurt women, you know, forever uh, since it was first written, you know, people have used those texts um, in such awful ways, but that she saw in the Bible, yes, a dominant narrative um, and, you know, other professors at union, um, like, uh, the late Reverend Dr. James Cohn, who I had, um, who was, who was and, one of the main figures in black liberation theology, the father, yeah, the father of black liberation theology and corn and another professor, Cornell West, you know, th- there's no, um, I think the idea that, uh, the Bible has been used to like condone slavery and been used in really awful ways is not news to, you know, Dr. West or wouldn't have been news to, uh, Dr. Cohn, but yet there, there was an overarching message of liberation. The, the message from the beginning, uh, in Genesis that, uh, humanity was created good through, uh, you know, the message, uh, God's liberation of the Israelites out of Egypt. And then in the Christian Testament, you know, God's, um, love and uh and G- made manifest in Jesus couldn't even be confined by a state ex- execution that resurrection was more powerful than that i think that the course of the bible is something that points towards justice in a way that is not represented by fundamentalism but that's mm-hmm. not to discount all of the message all of the kind of ca- counter narrative um that fundamentalists take as the as what they read as the dominant one mm-hmm. so Let's talk a little about theology. The, um, you know, the term liberal theology isn't, isn't mainly referring to political liberalism, right? I mean, it's, it's, I mean, as it turns out, there's a correlation. People with liberal theologies are more likely to be politically liberal than people with conservative theologies. But, but I think of liberal theology as referring more to how kind of liberal your conception of like what God might be and so on. So a more conservative theology would tend to have maybe a more anthropomorphic conception as you find in much of the Bible. Liberal theology could go as far away from that um, as Paul Tillich went, who was also at Union, and talk about God as the ground of being. Uh, some people might rightly ask, like, what the hell does that mean? Uh, and how, and, and as people did ask him, how different is that from not believing, you know, not believing in a God, right? So there is this, there's a spectrum of theology. Um, and I assume, you, you, you know, theologically speaking, um, you, you don't talk much about this in the book, but, but you are liberal in your conception of divinity and, and so on. Definitely. I also identify in the book as not a theologian. Yeah, that's why. I think you need to know your lane. I often come back to, well, one, yeah, not policing people's um, boundaries, which I think would put me in the liberal camp just by Mm -hmm. definition. Mm -hmm. Um, Stressing the kind of um, Christianity as a social movement 
and also wanting to like, um, you know, I, I also actively kind of push back against a lot of time being spent on these kind of questions of doctrine of God and other mm-hmm. things when sort of human needs are not met yet. We have the resources right now in this country and world to meet everybody's basic needs, which feels to me like a much more pressing concern and where I put my time. But I do address the kind of um, the there's certainly a tie on the right and like you say, kind of throughout uh, uh, in liberalism as well, where a lot of the kind of like social control um, you have to believe all these certain things ties in uh, the, the theology does tie into kind of like the political concerns. So I don't want to avoid it, but it's also kind of not my work. Okay. Um, let me press you a little on an issue that's not a, it's not a conception of God issue, but uh, it's not just a political issue. And I, I would guess you have a view. Um, do you believe in in universal salvation? That is the idea that basically nobody goes to hell. I do. You do. Okay. Is that, uh, I, I, I guess. You're um, pressing me in a way that, yeah, no, I, I enjoy it. Yeah. I In there, a way that's a counter, counterproductive that to your mission as a political organizer. Is that what, <laughs> is that the, the problem? Am I? I, I'm like system. I, I'm like uh, helping you alienate people. Um, well, so well, let's get back to the first question. So, I, I take it your view on conception of God is like whatever works for you. If somebody has a highly anthropomorphic conception of God, that's not how you would uh, personally um, assess their version of Christianity. You, you would focus more on like what values emanate from their Christianity yes. when when the when the rubber hits the road. Um, and I'm the, not in the business of policing their kind of mm-hmm. uh, right belief. And also, you know, so much of belief is tied into the ability, like, there's so many questions I have about anyone's ability to believe and like, at what age, you know, all these questions I know have been debated. But for me, it just the more and more I think about it, the less I care. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but keep going. I'm, I'm just, uh, I was kind of wondering as I'm re- reading your book, is there like, uh, some, are, are there any theological ideas that in your mind would exclude someone from being a progressive Christian? Like, for example, if you believe in, um, the eternal damnation of people who do not accept Christ, including people who were born in places where they never heard about Christ, you know, the most extreme kind of conception of uh, of the, you know, traditional, you might say, conservative uh, salvation narrative, would you say, look, you just can't, I, I mean, you may be for, you may be pro-choice, you may be this, you may be that, but I, you just can't call yourself a progressive Christian if you're going to have certain kinds of theological or eschatological or whatever beliefs is there some minimum a, threshold that has question. to be? Yeah. But I do, and that's where I say the two concepts are linked in some ways. Like, it's really tough for me to believe you're a progressive Christian that doesn't think women are equal to men. Like, uh, that says theologically, you know, uh, God created man first and women to be his helper. And that's shows a kind of, um, you know, a fundamental like mm-hmm. male headship of the of the family, and I may support women's pay and the Equal Rights Amendment civil in civil life, but I disagree. So yeah, I do think there are some uh, concepts that would make me very wary of someone. Uh, I don't think it would be my calling in life to expel them or take any act. I don't I don't know what that would mean for me, but I do think one I haven't really met that person that thinks someone that never heard the Christian message is going to spend eternity that died at, at one week old is going to spend eternity being punished mm-hmm. and supports a universal basic income. I haven't met that person. <laughs> uh, but if I did, I don't think I would take any, I don't think I'd be moved at all to do anything about it. Yeah. Okay. Um, a kind of related question. I, I would assume that there are some conservative Christians who look at somebody like you or some progressive Christians and say, 
you're just wrong about even being a Christian. You don't, you really don't qualify. Your beliefs exclude you, right? I mean, I'm sure that happens. And I'm sure there are progressives who say the same thing about conservative Christians. So, so, so it's kind of a related, a question related to my last question, which is not, are there, are there beliefs that would exclude you? Are there theological beliefs from, that would exclude you from being a progressive Christian? That was my last one, but are there, political or or theological beliefs that are held by a fair number of people who call themselves Christian in America that you would say really mean that they just aren't Christians. They're just confused. They're just confused um, about the religion. It's actually something that's a lively debate, you know, and, and there are people that scream fake Christian. You know, they often scream it at the president. Um uh, who well, claims well, to although be a that's partly there, the idea is partly is he's just lying about even believing, right? That that's that's I part of what they mean. He was raised, you know. I know the church, you know, that, that really had an influence on him. Marble Collegiate in yep. New York City, Norman Vincent Peale. Yep. That's a brand of Christianity. There's no denying it. So I, I pretty much have a have a pretty resolute um, commitment to saying if you're a Christian. Uh, you know, if you claim to be a Christian, then I'm going to describe you that way. I'm not going to say you're not. Um, and it does make for an asymmetrical battle where fundamentalists are claiming I'm not a Christian. People tell me that almost every day um, that I'm not a Christian. And then the progressives are saying, not only are we saying um, conservative Christians are Christians, we also are feeling very um bad about all the harm that's been done in, in history by conservative Christians and feel like the need to confront them about it. So it's, uh, it's, we're, it's not like two sides arguing. It's, it's one side claiming the other doesn't really exist. And the other one feeling compelled by conservatives to do a lot more. Okay. Um, let's see the, uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, one of the highlights of my mother's life, was when she visited New York when I lived there and I took her to a service at Marble Collegiate Church because she had been a big Norman Vincent Peale fan. He was, of course, he was no longer, uh, I don't think he was still alive. He certainly wasn't preaching at that point, but still, uh, nice church. Um, and, uh, so, uh, so what do you, um, so, so in terms of who you, you hope to reach and what you want to do with a book, you want to, um, I mean, is it, it, it's more that you want progressive Christians to stand up and, and be proud and fight the fight and wear the brand, both the progressive and the Christian brands, uh, then that you want, it, it's more that than that you're saying to progressives who aren't Christian, hey, you could be a Christian, you know, think about it. Don't, don't, right? I mean, uh, it, 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 that that kind of proselytizing uh, is not so much your emphasis. I mean, I'm sure it has been an issue for some people who feel as spiritually inclined. They might not reject Christianity otherwise, but they look around and the main kind of Christianity that gets in the news in America is conservative Christianity. And maybe that's the reason they don't take a second look at Christianity. But that's not your main mission, right? Converting people to Christianity. That is not my main mission, but I do agree that it has that effect of so many people will say, I don't go to church. And then I ask them, like, why? And they give me a fundamentalist kind of characterization of what church is. And I and when I tell them, you know, in New York, when I was like, I'm in seminary, they would look at me like, uh, you know, their eyes would bug out. <laughs> and then they'd be like, what? I know what you care about. I know, you know, you're openly gay, man. How are you in seminary? And so I think a lot of people, the so-called unaffiliated, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, um, so many of those people have been, um, just don't know about progressive Christianity, you know, don't have any idea that these churches exist, um, that, you know, take the Bible seriously, but not literally have social convictions that mirror their own. And there are people that have been really harmed by the church that have left. And they, I hear, you know, that um, have an and I think there's a lot of healing to come from progressive Christians being a little more vocal. And even if someone's like, maybe doesn't ever want to go back into church, uh, they may benefit some from, you know, <laughs> hearing more about progressive Christians. I have a hard time thinking, you know, like um, 
if uh, James Cone's version of Christianity was the one you heard about most, that you'd hear from progressives so much, oh, I don't like Christianity. Mm-hmm. Now, your reference to people who feel they were harmed by religion is a good segue to uh, Sam Harris, whom you mentioned in the book. I debated Sam Harris once, and, and, and after listening to, talking to some people who are in the audience, I mean, it was his home crowd. They were people who worshipped him. It was like it was like appearing alongside a rock star. Um, and I, I, I realized for the first time that a certain number of his followers are people who believe they were personally harmed by religion. I, I think sometimes by particularly intense, fervent parents. Um, now, mm-hmm. anyway, the, the segue accomplished. I, I want to ask you about your 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 reference to militant atheists as you know, another another contingent that progressive Christians have to deal with because they may agree with the militant atheists on a lot of political issues, and yet you still see these particular kinds of atheists as kind of a, a, a challenge. Right. It is. It's the Bill Maher crowd that that laughs at all people that are anti-religion not anti-fundamentalism or pointing out concerns um, with, you know, what their critique of Christianity or any religion is. And you hear that a lot about, you know, uh, critiques of Islam uh, and other, you know, just all kind. It's, it's not unique to Christianity. It's all religion. And it's hard because those people are often seen as allies politically. And in a lot of progressive spaces, you'll hear people say like religion is bad church, and, you know, you shouldn't, ha- you should have the separation of church and state. And it comes not from people you see as your kind of political enemy. And so it's actually, I found, um, it, it, it keeps from speaking out more than conservative Christians do. It's the secular kind of fundamentalists who, um, are the ones that are kind of tamping down progressive Christian out. Okay, I, I also wanted to touch briefly on the issue of militarism and war. Because I'll, I'll be honest with you and say that one thing that disappointed me a little uh, during my time at Union was that there weren't more students, there were a lot of politically motivated students at Union Theological Seminary, as you know. Mm-hmm. And that's a long tradition at Union. But um, I, there wasn't much activism about, uh, there wasn't much anti-war activism and uh, you know, anti-militarism action. There wasn't much agitating about American foreign policy. Um, I, I don't mean that, that there weren't views along those lines. People didn't have views, but I think you'll agree. It wasn't, it wasn't like a big, it wasn't like a big thing. Um, in terms of what people went, kind of went to the streets over, so to speak. Um, is that, does that can do you do you think that kind of continues to be the case? I mean, honestly, I think it's it's an issue with progressives broadly, in my view, uh, pretty broadly. Do you do you think it's something that deserves more emphasis than it's gotten in progressive Christianity? Completely, and sort of going back to my own story, I grew up, you know, with union organizer parents. But the first issue I really saw as my own was opposing the invasion of Iraq. And there was, um, I was 13 and actually gave a sermon about it in my church on Youth Sunday. And there was a lot of faith-based, um, I think, activism when there was like larger um, anti-war activism overall. I'm not so sure how much it's a issue with the faith community as much as the kind of, and as just these endless wars have gone on, they've become, you know, people have accepted them wrongly as normal. And so there's less kind of um, activism. And then people, I think there was a lot of reluctance to protest President Obama when he didn't kind of follow through on his commitments um, with uh, in, in terms of war and Guantanamo Bay. But yeah, motiv- my motivations and so many people's motivations in this space uh, are around peace. And like the one of the longest traditions in progressive Christianity are the peace churches and in DC, the friends committee on national legislation is one of the strongest, I think, faith-based organizing groups that's, you know, working on, uh, public policy. So I think there's a lot, 
that is going on, but there, mm-hmm. there could be more. And it just, it's a function, I think, of people just wrongly accepting kind of these, uh, endless war as a fact of life because it, it obviously doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. So I, w- I would love to see more. And I actually have thought about, you know, doing more to kind of make foreign policy a key progressive Christian concern. Maybe we should talk after we quit recording. <laughs> we, I'd like to, I'd like to brainstorm further on that. The, like, um, without war is, I worked a lot with them in my previous job where I was focusing on Islamophobia. And when without, there's so much good activism going on. You, you said when, when without war? When without war is such, I'm sure you know them. And yeah, they're, they're a great, great group. Stephen Miles. Yeah, yeah I work yeah. really closely with Stephen. And there, I think there's an awareness that the faith community has a really strong, uh, role to play, especially the Muslim community that has a very strong role to play in condemning, you know, because so much of the wars are wrapped up in Islamophobia. So there's a lot more that could be done. But I do think if you go back to the when there was a huge anti-war movement um, any time, but it's even around the invasion of Iraq, there was a strong faith component to it. Okay. Now, if you ask, uh, well, what were union students doing when they since they weren't doing a lot of anti-war posts? I would say, you know, the big thing was social justice, uh, which and the Black Lives Matter. The Black Lives Matter. A lot Lives of Matter. racial justice and and kind of some LGBTQ um, stuff. I and this this is a question that really doesn't necessarily have any connection to Christianity, but it's become kind of a hobby horse of mine, especially since the George Floyd thing. I mean, it seems to me a lot of people have written about this that they're. Um, I mean, how would you, that there's a, uh, there is some tension between what is pejoratively called identity, identity politics, whether you like the label or not, you know what I mean? Um, and an emphasis on class as, uh, you know, as an organizing principle. An emphasis on class would say, you know, we're helping the downtrodden, we're helping low income people, Regardless of ethnicity, we're looking for policies that help them all. Whereas, you know, other, uh, more race-based policies might be reparations or whatever. And I guess as a practical political matter, it seems to me that to some extent, the identity politics can impede a kind of solidarity, class-based solidarity that could in principle be built across party lines. I mean, there are Trump voters out there who have class grievances fundamentally they they consider themselves the downtrodden and the neglected and they have been neglected and um i i'm just uh i i say you're nodding your head in a way that suggests you've thought about all this stuff is there um do you have do you have a view on on it well just uh independent of christianity or or a view on um on it in the context of Christianity. Yeah, I'm thinking about your earlier question about the kind of person that's super progressive politically and then, you know, thinks all people who've never heard of Jesus are going to hell forever. Like this kind of mythical person. In in my experience and growing up uh, in the labor movement, like I've been committed to economic justice uh, my entire life. And I, and I don't think there is a very large constituency of people that don't that like really are class conscious are involved in the labor movement. They may, the person you're describing may have like class grievances vaguely, and, but would like, you know, blame what are, have bought into the capitalist ethos and, you know, would bl- blame other factors. Like the people that are talking about like, uh, that have a strong kind of class consciousness and want to build power amongst working people. I have not experienced a large number of those people that don't see systemic racism and also want to concurrently address systemic issues of race and other ways people are marginalized. And I think as a Christian, especially that, that Jesus is always in the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers. That's an intersectional approach that, you know, kind of combining all the people that are left out and marginalized. And so I, I, I hear this a lot, this kind of mythical person that maybe, you know, is like a union member, but really 
is uh, doesn't think racism is real, uh, but I don't think they they exist in meaningful numbers. Yeah, I guess that's not so much the way I would have thought about the question I meant to ask. Um, I guess I'm 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 you know at the surely policy level, it's kind of like. Um, well, there are these Trump voters that, you know, you can, you can in principle approach and say, look, your plight, you know, you, you have been ignored and there are ways, you know, there are policies that can help you deserve better from the government and so on in various, in ways that are consistent with my values. Um, and as a practical matter, um, it may be harder this is such a long conversation, maybe I shouldn't even start it. It may be harder to win them over if they get the feeling that you consider all Trump sure, supporters yeah, yeah, racist I, I ever... uh, by virtue of being Trump supporters or something, if that if that think... makes sense. There's, there's, a, there's a real uh, readiness. That's kind of a trope you hear, that, yeah. <laughs> that people think all Trump supporters are racist, which is obviously not true. I think the... Uh, Jesus says, you know, I came to bring life and life abundant. I think if we view, like, if we really tax the rich like we should, there's enough for reparations. There's enough for everybody to have enough. There's enough for everybody um, in this country and in the world, you know, uh, because I don't think there's any moral distinction between Americans and people in other countries. And I think that's a very unique or that's a very kind of fundamental Christian concept. But I think there's enough for everybody. And there's enough to especially, particularly address the harms of systemic racism. So I, I would, mm-hmm. and I think that would appeal to everybody. <laughs> if some, if the, the person, if the working class person that's like, no, I don't want, um, a fundamental reordering of society where everyone has enough because there's some other, you know, we're going to also address systemic racism. I'm not sure that's a large group. I think there's enough to to do both, and that that would appeal to everybody. Do you disagree? Yeah, well, I, I think if you if you you know, I, I'm sure I could go into Middle America and find people who disagreed about what was racism. Whether you can confidently infer that every time, but if you told that person, a, a I'm really on your side person, in terms of give, racism, like restructuring society, like so you have and, and, um, economic justice. Are they going to object to that because you also think there's systemic racism? Yeah. <laughs> if they think you're possibly, if they think you're vilifying uh cops everywhere unduly or something maybe yeah, yeah. i mean people like human psychology is funny they can just decide that you're the enemy um the uh i mean i'll tell you th- th- there there was one time and what really kind of brought this to mind is there was a time in your book where where i thought you were a little casual with the allegation yeah. of racism it was about this martin luther king thing that what was it smithsonian magazine did a thing on martin luther king they cla- they were they were I guess it was a thing like the greatest rebels of the last hundred years and the greatest this is and the greatest religious leaders and the greatest that right. and, and, and Martin not Luther a King they called leader. one of the greatest rebels there and you said that was yeah, maybe, racist uh, yeah are you sure you sure that that you sure that that was racism I think that the systemic way in which we view black people in America and you see this all the time I see this. In political reporting, I just saw this earlier today. You see it all the time. Black people are motivated by race, not religion. And you, and yet you talk about white evangelicals being motivated by religion. I do think that's racist. I think it's discounting, uh, and erasing the religiosity of black Americans. Um, and you also, you often hear about these 81% of white evangelicals that voted for Trump. And it's like, oh, look how strong we hear all the time, just casually, the evangelical base, evangelical this talking about white evangelicals, and yet you never hear about black Christians who voted in larger numbers for Hillary as like this voting block, black Christians. When was the last time you heard that politically? Black Christians as a voting block. Maybe it's... 
Okay. Um, well, I guess, yeah, but I mean, there as, as an analytical matter, if the, if the black vote is overwhelmingly for Hillary, they're not going to divide the black vote up any finely, more finely period. They don't need to. The blackness seems to be the variable that they're interested in, right? I mean, whereas with whites, you had a very big split, right? Not nearly all whites voted for either candidate. The white-black split is strong, and then there's variations when you break up evan- white evangelicals from white mainline. It's White mainliners also went majority for Trump. Um, so there is some variation there, but it's the way we talk about this, consti- this constituency, this group of Americans, as the white evangelicals are motivated by religion, whereas black voters are motivated by being black. Okay, I kind of see, although, I mean, Trump, uh, white, working class, a lot of Trump supporters are said by many people to be motivated by racial uh, identity issues. I mean, I'll tell you, the thought that came to mind is, because I've worked at magazines, and, and I've seen, like, these lists put together, like, the greatest, the greatest, is the, and, and it's like, what's happening on the inside of the magazine is like, okay, we got to get this issue out. Oh, shit, we've got two blacks under religion and we don't have any blacks under rebel. Let's move Martin Luther King to rebel. You know, it's like that's how pragmatic and crass the considerations are. Um and and uh and I guess so there was that thought and there's the thought that uh you know, I I just my sense of middle America and and look, I get grief all the time from people who say, I spend so much time worrying about what my opponents think, and like, or I used to get it about the war on terrorism. It's like, oh, you have sympathy for terrorists because you want to understand, like, how they're looking at the world as a, as a, as a way to wind up ending terrorism, right? First figure out what motivates them. But I do think there is a lot of reflexive aversion out there to what are seen as casual allegations of racism. It's like, there are plenty of times that you can confidently say that that somebody is racist, or at least there there are a fair number. Um, and I exactly. I just think um, what's I appreciate that? that and and um, uh, it's hard. I I you know picking examples versus describing kind of general grievances and and trends you see. Um, but I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm certainly not saying, and I hope it didn't come off this way that like whoever wrote that kind of specifically had racist intent. Um, well, here we here we get to the fact that the meaning of racism has changed. The meaning of racism is changing, and older people take it to right. be an allegation about a, a very explicit and conscious attitude, right. and younger people. They're almost starting to use the term racism to mean systemic right. racism. In other words, racism subtly ingrained in institutions and practices that are discriminatory in effect, regardless of whether there's consciously, you know, classically racist, racist intent. And I think that's another thing to be, to be conscious of the way the word is being heard in different corners. But this is, we're, we're venturing a, a long way from, uh, from a, your book at this point. So let's just, in, in kind of closing, get get back to something you hear from conservative Christians. Uh, well, love the sin or hate the sin. Uh, I assume there's a progressive version of that in the way you look at conservatives with attitudes you really don't like. And and, and also, I would just say, well, just talk about the the challenge laid down. In, in, uh, by Jesus and, uh, I think by Paul in some, in some way, uh, about loving, you know, loving your enemy. Like that, taken literally, that would mean a progressive should try to love Donald Trump, love Donald Trump supporters. Is that something you, that you think is worthwhile, that you try to do, that you encourage, that? Yeah, this came up with, uh, President Trump getting diagnosed with COVID. Uh, testing positive that um, my husband woke me up and said the president has COVID and I've been since uh, early, since the early days of the Trump administration been running a daily uh, prayer devotional called the resistance praise P R A Y S. And we publish 
We've done over a thousand daily editions of this prayer newsletter, publishing a new prayer for uh, Christians who are part of the resistance to Trumpism. And so it's like, what are we going to pray today? And I think the the call to to love your enemy is a lot of it's about what you become when you pray for your enemy. You're never mm-hmm. deny. I'm never as a Christian praying for Trump, denying his dignity and the dignity of all people, which informs so much of my political convictions. It informs my aversion to capital punishment, right? That mass murderers should not be put to death by the state. I don't think for all the evil Trump has done, he should be put to death uh, by the state. I, I don't wish him to die. I don't wish um, anyone to die, no matter what they've done. And so I think that's like the core conviction. It's what praying for your enemy does uh, for you. And so that's why I encourage people uh, to pray and to also be open to change. You know, there's, I actively, when Trump was elected, I hoped he would change. Maybe that meant he, he has never once tried to expand his base as president, which we all kind of recognize. But I, I still hope, I hope tomorrow he would say, I'm going to actually embrace the COVID relief. Maybe he's doing it for, you know, political reasons as a last ditch effort to change his polls. But I genuinely hope that he acts for the common good and changes his ways even now. And I think that's the way, um, that I want to live optimistically, hopeful that that people that everybody will come around that people um who say you know my marriage is not equal um will change their minds and that people will change their minds about human dignity in every way and that's just how i want to live my life and i think how jesus called his followers too okay great well listen uh thank you for taking the time you did a great job on the book it's just faith Reclaiming Progressive Christianity. Uh, where can people find you online? Your your Twitter handle is what? That is that would be too long. I don't think Twitter would allow that. Guthrie no, G. What is your Twitter handle? At, uh, is the Twitter handle. Okay. Any other online presence you want to make us aware of? Instagram, Facebook. Um, you know, you can find me. You can email me through the Center for American Progress if you're interested in kind of this work of um, Uh progressive. If you're interested Uh in this work kind of of activism and progressive politics from a faith lens, you know, that's my full time job at the Center for American Progress. So I'd love to hear, you know, your thoughts on that. And you can contact me through the CAP website. All right. Great. Well, thanks so much, Guthrie. Thanks, Bob.